0: Once again,
1: every hour, on the hour, hoffin' and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first, but that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight, every hour on
2: the hour.
1: listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grox.
3: That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
1: Coming up on today's show, seeds, genes, and art.
3: In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Kenneth Kamler, who will discuss surviving at the extremes.
1: Also, we'll find out what styrofoam is made out of.
3: So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week, coming right up, here on Berkeley Grox.
1: Rocks, I'm Frank Ling.
3: Once again, I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank?
1: So what's in your art collection?
3: See, I have dogs playing poker. Wow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it almost sounds original.
3: No, I, I try and go for classy artwork.
1: So do you think any of these were done with optical tricks, or are they actually the skill of the
3: artist? They're not actual reality, aren't they? <laughs>
1: oh. Well, it turns out there's a painter, David Hockney. That apparently, he wrote a book in 2001 called Secret Knowledge, and he claims that a lot of Renaissance paintings were achieved using technology such as Camera Obscura.
3: Camera Obscura? Yes. What is that?
1: It's some technique using lenses to project images of a subject onto a canvas. Okay. So, he was saying that they needed this in order to create this heightened realism that we see in these paintings.
3: Right, because there was the sense of trying to go hyper-realistic in these.
1: Right, but now I, a physicist and historian, David Stork from Stanford University, claims that these theories are wrong because the light that you would gotten from such a technique would be a thousand times fainter than what we could normally see from the real light.
3: Okay, so basically they're not projecting the image onto this canvas, they're just drawing it as they saw it.
1: Yeah, and he thinks it's just because these artists were just so skillful. And the example he gives is that there's a painting by George de la Tour from 1645, Christ in the Carpenter Studio, Mm -hmm. and they're trying to analyze if the candlelight was the only source of light in that painting. And it turned out from his analysis, given the technology they had back then, that that was the only source of light and that the artist drew it with his own skills.
3: Wow, I don't think they could get to the position that they would have gone to just by tracing images.
1: Right. But the controversy continues. Other physicists believe that artists can actually trace the shadows as well as what they see so
3: okay well i didn't even realize it was such a controversy but good for them
1: yes so maybe your painting is real after all
3: i mean how else could they capture dogs playing poker besides (laughs) because you you realize they're dogs and they're playing poker yes how can that be i just don't know maybe they're bluffing (laughs)
1: all right well this is an interesting article that was in the january 15th issue of new Scientist.
3: So do you have problems controlling your genes?
1: Yeah, they rip off pretty easily. I have a very active lifestyle, you know.
3: <laughs> well, thing's going to kill you, <laughs> or at least kill your genes. <laughs> so it turns out, though, that there are a number of regulatory mechanisms for controlling gene expression. Right. But one which is just beginning to receive a lot of attention is microRNAs.
1: MicroRNAs?
3: MicroRNAs. So
1: cool. It's like microtubules. and uh... It's
3: like an iPod mini. You know? <laughs> In fact, you can see the little Apple logo on some of these things. <laughs> So it's interesting because a group of researchers are interested in these molecules because they can bind to RNA that's being transcribed off the DNA. Okay. And this messenger RNA of course then gets to be just transcribed as proteins eventually. Mm-hmm. So what happens is the small RNAs bind to these RNAs and of course prevent the translation.
1: Okay. So it's an uh, inhibitor?
3: Right. It's sort of acting like inhibitors. Uh-huh. But the question of course was how many of the genes really were being controlled in this manner. Hmm. So a group of researchers led by David Bartlett at the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts and his colleagues built a computer algorithm basically look for these types of messenger RNAs to see if there are microRNAs that might complement it. Right. And turns out is that they did a comparative study across several animals because it was likely if they saw these things across species that they would be found. And they assume now that it looks like almost a third of our genes may be controlled by these microRNAs.
1: Wow, so these are actually pretty important pieces of molecular machinery. Huh? Yeah,
3: it seems like and they've been overlooked for quite some time, so researchers, I guess, will have to start looking into their role in gene expression.
1: Cool. Does this challenge any of the current theories as to how genes are expressed?
3: I guess it will just uh, add another layer onto uh, the regulatory mechanisms of how genes can interact with each other. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating work, and because of that, of course, it was published in a uh, very good journal, Cell.
1: So, Charles, how do you save and sow your seeds?
3: I, in fact, I don't, which is, I guess, the problem. I'm not saving for the future.
1: <laughs> you just let it go to waste.
3: <laughs> well, I, I was originally going to give it to some brokers, but they just pissed it away. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Literally, huh?
3: Well, you have no idea.
1: So it turns out it's illegal to save seeds now. Really? Certain kinds of seeds.
3: You can't bank them in some place?
1: Well, you can't save the harvest from the current year and then use those seeds for next year.
3: Oh, really? Why is that?
1: Oh, it turns out Monsanto has a copyright or (laughs) a patent on many of these seeds for genetically engineered crops. And, for example, you have cotton, which has been engineered to resist certain weeds or insects. And the company has a contract with the farmers that when you plant your crops, you don't save your seeds. In fact, you have to buy seeds from them again the following year.
3: Hmm. And how many farmers actually pay heed to this contract?
1: Well, Monsanto claims that there are 300,000 law abiding farmers, and there's a few hundred of them who are not. And hmm. the, the people who get caught actually get sentenced uh, pretty severely. One person, Kim Ralph, was sentenced to eight months in prison after he was caught lying hmm. about saving a truckload of cotton seeds for his friend.
3: Thank God for corporations. What would we do without them? The hmm, corporation.
1: It's based on the movie.
3: Uh, it was a very good film, in fact. If you haven't seen that documentary, go see it. So farmers, they're not allowed to plant anything they want, really. They have to go buy these seeds every year, huh?
1: Right. And another example, soy farmers, they pay a technology fee for about $6.5 per acre per year for these kind of crops.
3: So what if the farmers were just to go out and breed these cotton lines with something else? It would be completely different now. And then, right. And then they could be, they use those seeds?
1: Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm sure because of the proprietary nature of these technology that was in the original seeds, oh. <laughs> Monsanto would probably uh, screw you over. But this whole incident raises the issue of how much rights do companies have over a genetically modified material.
3: I guess they get tech support or something for that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you can read more about this, a very controversial issue. It's in the recent issue of Technology Review. <laughs>
3: Okay, Frank, are you a big spelunker?
1: A spelunker? What's a spelunker?
3: <laughs> Spelunking. Spelunking. Yes, uh, basically caving, going down in caves, and putting yourself in harm's way, that kind of thing.
1: No, I just put myself in harm's way, though.
3: Okay, well, either way, that works fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you won't have to be uh, aware of falling stalactites or stalagmites.
1: Never worried about them. I thought they're all a plastic, though, aren't they? Uh, Even those. I think the ones fuzzy. you find
3: in Disneyland, yeah. Well, okay, so it turns out, though, that researchers for quite some time have been interested why uh, stalactites and stalagmites have the shape that they do. Mm-hmm. So the stalactites are the ones that, of course, hang from from the ceiling, and the stalagmites are the ones that grow upwards. Right. The question was why the stalagmites, the ones on the bottom, have the big conical shape and not just be a big blob, right? hmm Because basically they're formed from just dripping uh, water, which deposits calcium on the floor. Right. So a group of researchers, actually mathematicians and uh, physicists, investigated this using a number of mathematical models mm-hmm. to observe stalagmites might grow. And it turns out that the bead of water, as it hits the ground, mm-hmm. actually is more uh, concentrated and thicker at the top, the tip of this thing, of the oh. stalagmite. Okay. And so it deposits more calcium there than at the bottom. Right. And so this allows sort of an upper growth in a conical shape.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
3: That basically explains why it is, and it, it also explains why you always find they have basically the same shape, but they don't really vary in terms of their orientation. So really fascinating. It was fu- published in the Physical Review Letters, and as one uh, Harvard University physicist, Howard Stone, explains, the group basically elegantly explained a phenomenon familiar to many, but poorly understood. And of course, this was again carried out and published in the recent edition of the Physical Review Letters. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Dr. Kenneth Kamler will join us to discuss how the human body can survive in extreme circumstances. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, the human body is amazingly constructed, with the ability to survive in the most extreme environments. Yet at the same time, this relatively robust creation is prone to breakdown from any number of outside assaults. This dichotomy is all the more amazing when the limits of human endurance are tested. Well, joining us today to discuss the limits of human endurance is Dr. Kenneth Kamler. Dr. Kamler is a microsurgeon who has served as the physician on several explorations to remote corners of the planet, as a doctor on many National Geographic expeditions, as well as chief high-altitude physician for a NASA project on Mount Everest. He was chosen by New York Magazine as one of New York City's best doctors in 2002, and he's vice president of the Explorers Club and the author of several books, including Doctor on Everest. His new book, Surviving the Extremes, What Happens at the Limits of Human Endurance, examines the ability of the human body to withstand extreme conditions. Dr. Kamler, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks.
4: Hi, Charles. Glad to be here.
3: Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the program, and you've written a very fascinating book, Surviving the Extremes. And when I read the stories that were contained in this book of people surviving in extreme circumstances, I'm struck by the fact that the human body can be at once both hardy and fragile at the same time. How is it that the human body is able to uh, exist in this dichotomy
4: It's well it's an incredibly complex machine it's by far the most complex system in the entire universe and that gives it tremendous capabilities to withstand what I call environmental insults but yet like any complex machine it has vulnerable points and it struck at one of its vulnerable points it can die easily
3: so what physiological adaptations have we acquired through evolution then that have allowed us to survive in these extreme environments?
4: Well, if you think about it, we're all descendants of survivors. We've evolved through millions of years, and if we didn't have the survival ability built into us, we wouldn't be here because our lineage would have died out a long time ago. So all of us that are here are the product of a survival mechanism built into us. And some of us bring it out and some of us don't, but most of us now live in a situation where we're protected in our environment. We don't get a chance to really see if we have it or not. But what I talk about in my book is people who have been put to the test in one way or another, and we see whether or not their survival instinct comes forward.
3: Well, you do present a number of very interesting stories in the book of people who have survived in extreme circumstances, and I think none of them are more fascinating than those who have survived on the high seas.
4: Yeah. Of all the environments, the high seas is the greatest wilderness on the planet. It covers the most area. It's the only wilderness that moves, and the people, generally speaking, who have adventures on the high seas didn't plan to have any adventure. They generally people who fell overboard or had some other kind of mishap. They didn't go looking for adventure. Adventure came to them. And since the wilderness of the seas, it actually moves, the survival instinct there is to try to keep yourself alive until you wash up on shore or until you're picked up by another boat because it's, it's the only one where you just have to sort of maintain yourself and don't have to actually get out of the environment. The environment will spill you out sooner or later.
3: Uh-huh. and what are the challenges to the human body in that type of situation
4: it's a kind of ironic situation because one of your biggest problems is thirst and there you are on a huge sea of water which you can't drink because it's salty so the first problem is generally thirst if you happen to be shipwrecked in an area where there's a lot of rainfall and you have something to catch the water in you're much better off but a lot of people have survived in areas where there's no rainfall by being able to catch fish and. Fish have little quantities of water in them. They have it in their eyeballs, they have it in their spines. If you can catch a fish, you can break its backbone and drink the fluid that surrounds the spine. Or you can eat the eyeballs like grapes and just sort of pop out the corneas when you when you finish chewing on it.
3: Hmm. Well that's a bit of a grisly scenario to even contemplate.
4: Yeah, it's a grisly scenario, but when you're in a survival mode, those things become the way to survive and uh you don't think about whether it's grisly or not.
3: Right. Well dehydration is a major survival issue in one of the other scenarios that you mentioned, which is of course the desert.
4: Yeah, in the desert, if you think about uh, temperatures can run up to 120 degrees or even more, and and the human body needs to stay at about 98.6, within 10 degrees of that. If you overheat beyond 10 degrees, it's fatal, and yet people do survive in the desert. They have body mechanisms built into them which allow them to get rid of that excess heat that they're building up, otherwise it would just cook like a boiled egg.
3: That's interesting. Well, do you think we evolved those cooling adaptations specifically for hot environments?
4: Yeah, the human body involved on the African desert, and that's pretty obvious when you consider that our optimum body temperature is maintained when the outside temperature is 86 degrees. 86 degrees just happens to be the temperature on the African savanna. So that's a pretty strong indication that's where we came from. And we have ways to deal with excess heat, because it often does get hotter than that in Africa, you know, where we originated. And one of the ways we do that is to use the skin like a car radiator. We take blood from within our inner parts of our body, from the inner core, and that draws the heat out into the periphery where it's sent out into the atmosphere. But if the air temperature is higher than the temperature that the blood is at, then it's going to work in reverse. So that system doesn't work all that well. And that's why we have that other mechanism, which I liken to a sprinkler system, which we call sweating. It's not as elegant as dissipating heat through the skin, but we're able to put water on the surface of our skins, and that water evaporates, and that brings about cooling. That's what keeps us from frying in, in hot temperatures.
3: Well, it's certainly interesting that we're able to adapt and survive in these extreme environments, but one of the themes that seems to run through your book is not so much that our physiologies are able to adapt to these environments, but more the fact that our ingenuity has allowed us to develop devices to tame previously inhospitable environments. Yeah, but
4: far our greatest tool for survival is our brains. Mm-hmm. Human beings are not the fastest, we're not the strongest, we're not all that well adapted to different temperature changes. But what we do have is we have the ability to accumulate wisdom through knowledge of previous generations, through language. We can pass down information and we can accumulate that wisdom, and that allows people to survive in in the desert or in any other condition. I talk in my book about a marathon runner who had no desert experience, who lived in the Sahara for eight days after he got lost with no water at all, and he was on the edge of survival. He Was rescued by an eight year old Bedouin girl Hmm. who was in perfect health and thriving there. And basically, their bodies are not that different. But the little Bedouin girl was the recipient of countless generations of wisdom. She knew how to survive, she knew what clothes to wear, she knew where to find shelter, she knew where to find water. And that's why humans can get into environments where they otherwise might not be suited.
3: Right. Well, the Amazon seems to be a case of that where you did an expedition and where you talk a lot about the sort of tribal survival knowledge that was passed down between generations.
4: Yeah, that's true. The Amazon is is a very tough place to live. It's what I call, in my book, the most competitive arena on Earth. All the plants and animals are are out there to try to kill each other, but yet, on the other hand, they need each other for survival. Human beings have learned through generations what constitutes a resource and what constitutes a danger in Mm -hmm. in the Amazon, and that's how they survive and uh, even in their own way thrive there.
3: Right. Well, I recall one of the interesting stories in your book was how people made darts from poison frogs.
4: Yeah, a poison dog frog is a very brightly colored animal. It sort of says, I dare you to eat me. <laughs> and It's very contrary to all other animals that try to hide in the jungle. But some of these frogs are so poisonous that if you even touch the skin on their backs, it can be fatal, much less if you eat it. Mm-hmm. And that certainly is a danger to anyone in the Amazon. But the Indians have used that to their advantage because they then take arrows made out of bamboo shoots and rub the tip of the arrow on the back of the frog. And they pick up the poison that way and they use it to hunt monkeys. So there's an example of turning a danger into a resource.
3: Well, it's really a fascinating example of the resourcefulness of people surviving in that situation. And now finally turning to perhaps one of the more alien environments for a human to survive in outer space yeah
4: outer space has got to be the most strange environment it's really the furthest from where people are adapted to live it involves problems such as zero gravity and radiation particles which just were never exposed to on the earth and human bodies you would think would be totally unable to adapt to that but yet even in a zero gravity environment after a while astronauts find that they can adapt to that they can get their balance and they, they can function in those kind of environments which makes us realize just how remarkable the human body really is it's taking on something which you could never even imagine sort of and it's able to use its built-in mechanisms to adapt to even the strangest environments.
3: Well, it's fascinating, and you yourself have been witness to many of the amazing abilities of the human body to survive in extreme circumstances. Um, in one of your previous books, uh, you talk about an ill-fated expedition to Mount Everest.
4: Yeah, I talk about that expedition in both books, actually. In 1996, when Everest had the worst disaster in its history, I was 2,000 feet below where the climbers were hit by a very severe, sudden storm, and 12 climbers died on that mountain. And, uh, I was the only doctor on the mountain, and I was taking care of the ones who survived. And Some of those survival stories are absolute miracles. There was one climber who just collapsed in the snow. His body temperature dropped. He laid in the snow a day, a night, and the next day with his body temperature Mm. dropping. And by all medical standards he just should have died but yet after all that time laying in the snow with no external source of heat he managed to just get up and it really was a question of using sheer willpower i think to get up to clear his brain to make his muscles move and to get out of that situation
3: yeah Well, one of the other interesting uh, tales that you talk about is the story of the sherpa who lands on his head but is revived by chanting
4: yeah I, that's how i start the book my first sentence is if the chanting stopped my patient would die mm. and that was the sherpa who i was taking care of who had fallen into a crevasse and fractured his skull and he had all the signs of, of imminent death about him. His pupils were fixed and dilated. He was completely unresponsive. I had him laying in a freezing cold tent on a stone table, and there wasn't much I could do for him. I did have IV fluids and oxygen, but it seemed like a pitiful attempt to revive him. And I felt certain he would have died if it wasn't for the fact that a group of Sherpas were sitting around him all night long, and chanting, and I really feel that somehow this chanting had some kind of uh, almost metaphysical effect on him. He did survive that night, and I can't explain it any other way. There's so much we don't understand in medicine that I'm open to explanations that come from Tibetan llamas or <laughs> Amazon natives or anybody else.
3: Well, you certainly led a very interesting career being both a microsurgeon and a world explorer. I'm uh, curious if you can talk a little bit about your journey from one to the other.
4: Well, when I was a little kid, about eight years old or so, I saw on my father's bookshelf a book called Annapurna, And I call that my first climb. I went up my father's bookshelf, pulled the book down because it had a funny name. And it turned out to be a story of what was, at that time, the highest mountain ever climbed, Annapurna. It was a classic mountaineering story. And that opened up a whole world for me that I never knew existed. Because I grew up in New York in the Bronx and apartment houses. And the whole idea of vast open spaces and mountains was just so intriguing to me. But it just seemed like a world I could never get anywhere near. So I got the bug to explore, so to speak. And I got myself a microscope because I found that that was a lot easier to do exploration uh, through a microscope in my room. We'll be right back. The cat sat on the And that led me into liking biology and medicine, and I became a doctor because I thought that the human body had more places to explore than anything else in the universe. And I went on and became a doctor, became a microsurgeon, which is what I do now. I still work with a microscope. But I never lost that idea that I wanted to explore vast open spaces as well. And I've been able to combine the two.
3: Oh, well, that's certainly a great story. And I'm curious, do you have any more explorations planned for the future?
4: Yeah, actually, I I have quite a bit going on. I'm still working with NASA. We're doing what we call telemedicine now, which is the ability to remotely sense information by putting sensors on climbers or NASA on astronauts and then beaming that information in real time up to satellites. And then that information is downloaded at major medical centers where doctors can give us their opinions on what's going on 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 a climber or on an astronaut's body. And we've been doing this project off the coast of Florida. NASA maintains a mock space station off the coast of Florida, 63 feet of water. And within this mock space station, four astronauts stay for two weeks. We're able to use them as examples to broadcast this information. And hopefully we can apply this to use on a space station because obviously you won't have a whole complement of doctors up on a space station. But this way we can get the input from doctors anywhere in the world in real time and it seems to be working pretty well I'm going back there to do another project with them in a few months
3: Well, is the hope, then, that uh, explorers on all the remote parts of the planet can be monitored using this equipment? Yeah, that's what's exciting
4: about this project, although we're developing it for an international space station. It certainly has huge applications for any backwoods environment, any remote area, an Eskimo village, uh, the middle of the Amazon jungle, even the backwoods in Idaho, any place where people have difficulty reaching medical care. This can bring first-rate medical care instantly to any environment.
3: Well, I think that's really another great example of human ingenuity, taming the environment there. Uh, But it looks like we are slightly out of time, and Dr. Kamler, I just want to thank you very much again for joining us today on Berkeley Grox and uh, discussing your book, Surviving the Extremes. Thanks, Charles. And you were just listening to Dr. Kenneth Kamler discussing his book, Surviving the Extremes, What Happens to the Body and Mind at the Limits of Human Endurance. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, we're back with Dr. Kenneth Kamler, author of Surviving the Extremes, What Happens to the Body and Mind at the Limits of Human Endurance. And Dr. Kamler has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Surviving the Situation. So, for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know... What is the probability of surviving the situation? Dr. Kamler, are you ready to play a game, the Grokatron 5000?
4: I'm ready to give it a try.
3: All right, very good. Here we go. The Grokatron 5000, situation number one. What is the probability of surviving a Super Bowl wardrobe malfunction?
4: <laughs> well, I guess that's pretty high, you know. I don't think there's any real physical danger, and uh, it's probably pretty exciting, and I think that would probably stimulate your survival instinct.
3: <laughs> well, I'd have to agree, but we'll have to see what happens this time around. All right, the Grocotron 5000 situation number two, an open zipper at a formal gathering.
4: Okay, well, I guess that would depend on which zipper it was, you yeah. know? <laughs> I think some zippers would probably be easier to overcome the embarrassment than other zippers, and I guess it would also depend who was at the formal gathering.
3: Right, well, hopefully uh, people have been able to survive that with any number of uh, zippers. Okay, uh, Grokatron 5000 situation number three, one you might be familiar with, surviving a career in medicine.
4: Okay, now that's a tough one. <laughs> I'd say a career in medicine, um, you know, I I still love what I do. I've been doing it for maybe 30 years now and I I really love it. The survival part comes at the beginning, I think. If you can get through your internship and residency, I mean that that's where you're probably at the limit of survival, but once you make it past that, it's a great career.
3: Uh I guess that's good news for all the aspiring doctors out there. Yeah. Yeah, the Grockshaw on 5000 situation number 4, surviving a low carb diet.
4: I guess that depends on the individual. you know it depends on your input i I personally have a pretty high carb diet, but that's because I do a lot of exercise. I'm pretty much on the move all the time, so I think you could survive a low carb diet if your level of activity is not that high. but if you have a high level of activity, I think you really need those carbs.
3: right, so uh, carb up if you're an athlete then, and now gracotron five thousand situation number five, surviving four years as President of the United States.
4: you know uh, I don't know anybody survives that. If you take a look at the pictures of some of the presidents. Uh, when they start office and four years later they've become grey and wrinkled and uh they've aged quite a bit. So <laughs> that, that might be the biggest survival test of all. <laughs>
3: Well, I'd have to agree with that. They certainly seem to come out a little worse for the wear after that. Yeah. Okay, well, Dr. Kamler, I want to thank you very much for sticking around and playing our game, the Grokatron 5000, and, of course, for discussing your book, Surviving the Extremes, What Happens to the Body and Mind at the Limits of Human Endurance. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay,
1: it's been a pleasure, Charles. Thanks uh, for
3: inviting me. All right, and now here's Jedi Master Yoda with the answer to last week's Question of the Week. Yoda.
1: Mm-hmm. stronger forces with life, but none of it I find in styrofoam. Mm-hmm. what is it? Mm-hmm. it turns out it's a polymer molecule consisting of carbon chains with tiny benzene molecules attached on the sides. Mm-hmm. and that's styrofoam.
3: Right, how's it going? Great. Well, you know, I said, all you need's love. But love's not all you need. All you need's hair. Sometimes curly hair's even better. Well, how do you make it so curly? If you know or think you know, email us at Gronks at Hotmail.com. You're not gonna win anything, but hey, you just might feel the love. And
1: that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
3: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
1: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley
3: Grox, I'm Franklin. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese.